Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. Usually when I, when I talk to you up here, I like to uh, start by kind of warming you up a little bit, you know, because you're doing your stuff in life and the world and got all the stuff going on and then you come in here and then I, I don't assume everybody's like, let's just jump right into the Bible like that everyone's ready to go, you know. So a lot of times um, I'll try to build a bridge there between the world we're living in and, and what we're about to get into. Um, but the topic today is so heavy uh, that I, I, it doesn't lend itself well to, you know, anything lighthearted. And uh, we have a lot to cover, a lot of ground to cover. Um, and so I want to wrap up the book of Esther today, and I want to actually just jump right in it, because we're going to talk about, we, we, we brought this idea up last week, and I really want to finish it. We want to talk about this idea of God's judgment um, and, his, and his judgment on, on us, on people, on humanity. Um, and that's a really unpopular topic, especially in modern America. Um, we're very uncomfortable with the idea of judgment and, and that God would, would judge things and that he brings his justice and he sort of brings the heat and all that. And that makes us very uncomfortable. So I want to get into it. And the way I, I, I framed it last week, if you were here, you remember I, I said that, uh, that, that we are not good at justice. We, we don't get it right. Personal justice, when someone has done us wrong, we think we know what would be the right way to fix that, but we don't always get that right, like on a societal level, on a national level, or by ethnic group or anything like that. Like, I'm, I'm 100% sure I, I do not have enough wisdom, I don't have broad enough shoulders to, to bear the burden of responsibility of exacting justice on the world. So we, we give that to God and say, God, you bring justice, you handle it. But if I'm honest, and I, and I said this last week, if, if I'm honest about it, I don't know if God does it all the right way all the time, or at least it doesn't feel that way to me. There's things that God allows to happen that seem unjust. There's, there's, um, there's things that God allows that seem unjust. There's things that, that seem just sort of backwards and sort of crooked and evil. And I'm just like, man, why is this going on? And, and, and you start saying those things like, well, if I was God, I would do this instead of what God apparently is, is doing. And so I asked the question last week, like, even in the concept of justice and judgment, is God getting it right? Like, is he doing it right? Um, it's, it's sort of an uncomfortable thing to think about. And I, I bring all that up because we're going to finish up the book of Esther, and it brings us to this idea of judgment and what God is doing. Um, if you remember how we set it up last week, the book of Esther kind of wraps up that Queen Esther has gone to King Xerxes and, and made it an appeal on behalf of the Jews. The Jews are scheduled to be slaughtered on this particular day all over the province of Persia. This is roughly the year 485 B.C. And during this, uh, the, the queen goes to the king and says, hey, can you make another edict that says that the Jews can fight back? And so they do. Um, an edict is passed. The Jews are allowed to fight back when people come to kill them. So on, on that particular day, in that particular month, the Jews rise up and they, they fight back. And in the first few verses of chapter 9 of the book of Esther, you see that they attack and they, they, they fight the people who are coming after them. Um, and it, it becomes sort of this bloodbath in a way that we're not comfortable with in the modern world when you're talking about hundreds and thousands of people being killed. Uh, it's really uncomfortable. Um, and, and I want to read to you where it goes next. Uh, Esther chapter 9, as the sort of the bloodbath continues and the, the fighting back, uh, listen to verse 5. We'll pick it up there. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Delphon 
and Espatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizatha. Easy for you to say. The, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Okay, so it lays out that they fought back, 500 people died, just, the, just in the capital there's 500 people that, are, that die as the Jews fight back, and it specifically names Haman, his ten sons. Now, Haman's the guy who instigated this whole thing. He's the guy that um, told the king we should wipe out all the Jews, and the, and the king was like, that sounds like a great idea. So this all goes back to Haman as kind of being the, the, the bad guy in the story. And so not only are a whole bunch of people killed, but specifically these ten sons of Haman are named. And in the original Hebrew text, the, their names are kind of set off to the side, almost like a hit list or like, like a, you know, an old school in the West, like wanted, you know, and they put someone's poster up on the wall. There's this list of names. Here are these 10 set apart names of people who were killed. So lots of people died, but these 10 we really want to highlight. Why? What's the big deal about those 10? Well, they're sons of Haman. And when Haman was introduced in the story, we read, and I brushed, I sort of touched on it a little bit then, but we need to really get after it. When, when, when Haman was mentioned in the story, he was mentioned as an Agagite if you remember. And an Agagite uh, is um, a descendant of King Agag. Uh, now, King Agag was an Amalekite. Now, if you know Old Testament history, you might have heard of the Amalekites. There's a lot of kites and ites and different people in the Old Testament, so it can be hard to keep track of. But the Amalekites um, were a particular group that attacked the Israelites as they were leaving slavery. So the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And then Moses rises up with the people. God leads them out. There are the plagues on Egypt. Moses comes to the Pharaoh, let my people go. You probably saw it when Charleston Heston did it years ago in a movie. Yeah, let my people go. And all the people leave. Or the prince of Egypt. You've seen that maybe. Uh, they're, they're all leaving Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. God is at work in them and, and, and doing this thing. And so they wander. The Israelites wander through the desert for 40 years. During that time, as they're getting ready to go towards the promised land, this, the land of sort of this modern-day land of Israel, um, as, they're, as they're going into that space, um, they get attacked by the Amalekites. And if you know the Bible story at all, you might remember that when the Amalekites attacked the Israelites in the desert, uh, Moses held up his hands, and whenever he held up his hands, the Israelites would win in the battle. And when his hands started to drop, um, then, then they would start to lose. So his siblings came alongside of him and they helped hold his arms up. So that was kind of a, a famous thing that happened. That was the battle of the Amalekites. Well, eventually the Israelites win that battle. The Amalekites kind of run away. Um, and, and something very interesting is recorded there in Exodus chapter 17. I want to read it to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So the Amalekites attack, and they're descendants of this guy Amalek, and um, God says, hey, you know what just happened here? Write it down in a book, and he did, and we're still reading it, right? So it, it, it's lasted. Um, write it down in a book, tell Joshua, who's like the next in line and command, let everybody know, like pass this on from generation to generation, I am going to deal with the Amalekites because they, they attacked you. Um, I, I, I'm, keeping, I'm keeping record up here, I, I got it, we're going to write this down and remember that this happened. Okay, now, fast forward 400 years. So about 400 years later, there's a guy named Saul who's become the first king 
of, of Israel. And as Saul gets put into power over Israel, God speaks to Saul through a guy named Samuel. And it's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I want to read it to you. This is what he says as he puts Saul into power. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now just notice for a second, this is the first thing said to Saul as he's taking over his king. God could tell him anything he wants at that moment. Hey, make sure you do kinging well, like be a great king, be nice, whatever. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So 400 years later, God says, hey, that thing uh, when, you were when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, I, I took note of that. I, I remember that. Um, I'm going to do something about that, and we'll, we'll see what he does here in a moment. And it's interesting because I, I would think the Amalekites, as they ran away, and when, after they had attacked the Israelites in the desert, they ran away, and, and they probably thought, well, that could have been worse. We're okay. Hope there's no retribution coming. And after a few decades, they go, I guess we got away with it. Like, all right, that happens, no big deal. And maybe 100 years later, 200 years, they just kind of forget about it. Like, whatever, we attack the Israelites, don't care. God remembers. He, he remembers in the long arc of history. He, he knows what they did. And maybe, and we don't know this, maybe God gives opportunity for the Amalekites in 400 years to turn from their ways. Maybe he gives them opportunities to repent, and they don't. Maybe he's like, hey, I want to work with you and... and, and get you right and bring you towards me, and they're not interested. 400 years is a long time in the history of a country. It's, you know, our country's been around for 240-something, right? So it's, it's much longer, right? This long history, and during that time, maybe God is reaching out to the Amalekites, and they're not responding. Maybe he's giving them opportunity, and, and they're, not, they're not having it. And maybe their culture is getting worse and darker and so God is going to deal with something that actually happened 400 years ago, and he's going to deal with it because he hasn't forgotten about it because of his sense of justice and what is right. So he instructs Saul to do something about it, and I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to know the verse I'm going to read to you has, has made atheists of people, okay? If you want to read about the, the genocidal God of the Old Testament like, that people like Richard Dawkins write about, they're going to point to the verse that I'm about to read you. And in fact... Uh, this isn't a verse that I've heard in my, I've been going to church since middle school. I can't recall a preacher ever preaching this verse. Maybe they have, I don't know, but this is not one that, you don't put this on coffee mugs, okay? Uh, I'll, I'll, this, is, this is hard stuff. And so I want to read to you what God says to Saul about how the Amalekites should be handled. Now go, verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's hard to read out loud. That's hard to understand. Um, if you can read that and go, well, God's ways are higher than our ways, sure. But if that doesn't shock you a little bit of what God is ordering up under the hand of Saul, um, you have more faith than I do because I, I read that and I go, I, I got some questions about judgment and about justice because it sounds like he wants everybody, just kill everybody. Hundreds of years after the people who perpetrated the thing, are, are, I mean, the people, there's no one alive that is about to be killed that, knew, that was part of the thing 400 years ago. 
That sounds rough, and it is rough. But as I read that, I also think, wait a second, it's, it's been worse than this before. Like, God has brought more heat than this. This isn't like the only time God says, you know, I'm going to do something. Maybe you remember back long before this story happens in about 1000 B.C., um, things got really bad on the earth, and God decided to wipe everybody out with a flood. Genesis chapter 6 records it. And listen to the way, this is the time of Noah, listen to the way the world was described leading up to the flood. Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So even in that, there's, there's hope, there's a remnant, there's someone who gets it, that God's like, well, but there is this one. Go back to, go back to verse 5 there where it starts, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How bad was it? Pretty bad. Like, everybody wants to do evil all the time. How horrible is that for relationships between us? How horrible is that between different tribes and clans and whatever? How horrible is that for the fabric of society when everybody is obsessed with evil all the time? We have seen evil things in our world. Maybe in our lifetime, and there's things you probably go, man, this is evil in my, in my neighborhood or in my, in my life or in the city or whatever. And we, we have examples. We, we talked about slavery, some of the evils of, that have happened in history. And we have seen, you know, within the last hundred years or so, you see things like Stalin and, and, and the slaughtering of people, of, of what Hitler did in Germany, of, of Pol Pot in Cambodia. Like, we've seen horrible things in history. But even in those places, I don't think at any point we would say, well, everybody there was evil all the time. Even in Hitler's Germany, there was people like Bonhoeffer who were trying to reform the thing from the inside and were trying to bring the gospel of Christ in, into the, in, to have it infect the culture. Like, there's still decent people. And God looks at the earth before the flood and says, I'm going to wipe it out because everybody is evil all the time. And it's just a reminder to me of that, like, our perspective is so, so limited. God decides to send his, a flood and he even says, I'm not going to do this for like 120 years. So there's plenty of time for people to like repent and change. God is going to bring judgment. And, it, and his judgment is slow. It's a, it's a dripping. But eventually that cup fills up and it will overflow and, and the judgment will come. And I point all this out to keep it in mind because when we read what Esther did and what the people and the Jews did in, in Persia and, and what I'm going to read to you next from Esther, um, we have or when we read about the Amalekites, we read about the flood, we have to remember, if God, if there's any justice in the universe and God is just, he has to deal with evil. He has to deal with the terrible things that we do to him and to each other. If he doesn't deal with it, if he's just like, ah, it's no big deal, then he's not just. If, if people slaughter one another and God's like, nah, I forgot about that or we're not gonna deal with that, then he's not, there's no, then there's ultimately no justice in the world. Um, and we have to think about that when we think about how he's going to handle these situations. And we have to remember our own limitations, that we're not perfect, that we don't see things 
clearly. So many times we say, if I was God, I would do it differently. I would handle that differently. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done that over here. I wouldn't do this and this relationship. I would do that, all that differently. It's easy for us to say that because we haven't walked in other people's shoes and we don't see the full, the full picture. It's easy for us to say in a place of comfort and security. If you have a comfy sofa and air conditioning, it is easy for you to say, well, those people over there, God's doing that wrong or, or they shouldn't be so whatever, like that's, that's an easy thing to say because you haven't had your village burned down. You haven't had your family slaughtered before your eyes. But people who have, even to this day, if you talk to people who have seen their village burn and you talk to them about the justice of God, they'll go, I hope that's coming. I hope the judgment of God is coming because there's evil in the world and I've seen it. And so you have to have a God big enough, you have to have justice big enough to hold massive things that are going on in the world and horrible, great evil. And we can look away. I can scroll through my feed, I can ignore the news, I, I, and, and if, I'm, if I'm blessed to live in a, in a part of town or where I don't have to see it outside my door, I can look away, but God cannot look away. He sees it, he sees all of it, and he deals with it, and he has to deal with it. So God says about the Amalekites, wipe these guys out. He tells Saul, every last one of them, they're wicked. Saul doesn't do it. Verse 9 of 1 Samuel 15. But Saul and the people spared who? Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. God says, wipe every single last one of them out. And Saul's like, I have a better idea. I'll, I'll wipe all of them. We'll keep the good stuff, and I'll let the king, which probably means his kids as well, I'll let the king and his family live. God gets on his case for this and is like, I'm going to remove you for being king for this. And then he eventually kills Agag, but there's, there's a lineage of Agag that survives, which goes all the way down to Haman and his ten sons that we read about in the book of Esther some 600 years later. That's when, when they are killed, um, his ten sons are killed, that's when God has ultimately fulfilled that promise of wiping Amalek from the face of the earth. It was 600 years, it was about a thousand years after they first were attacked in, in, in the wilderness. So there's another thing going on. There's a, a name thing going on. In the ancient world, your name matters. What, what you were named says something about you, your parents, your circumstances, whatever. And, and even into today in some cultures, your name is a big deal. A lot of us in our culture, we don't even know what our name means. But in the ancient world, your name matters. You probably heard maybe years ago, a few years ago, there was a book called The Prayer of Jabez. And they, they found this fairly obscure person in the Bible whose name was Jabez. And his name meant pain which might be what his mother was yelling when he was born, right? Like, well, I named my kid Pain. Like, it would be as, as if we named a kid Epidural. Like, you know, like, and so this guy had to walk around his whole life, like, my name is Pain. And it's like, that's an awesome way to live, right? Well, names matter, and there's something interesting going on with this list of names um, that, that I want you to, to hear from, from, uh, from, from the names that were listed. Uh, the ten sons of Haman. Let me read to you your names, and I want to tell you what their names mean. And what does this tell you about Haman? There's a theme that runs through all these names. I think you'll get it, all right? Parshandatha means curious self, or I am curious. Dalphon means weeping self, or self-pity. Aspatha means assembled self, or self-sufficient. Paratha means generous self, or self-indulgent. Adaliah means weak self or more likely humble self, and that sounds like it's a good one, but have you ever known people who brag because they're humble? 
Like, that's probably where Haman's at of, like, I'm so humble, I'm naming my kid humble. Like, it's just going to be awesome. Um, Aridatha means strong self or self-assertive. Parmashta means preeminent self or self-ambition. Arisai means bold self or I am bold. Aridai means dignified self or I am superior. And Vizatha means pure self or self-righteous. Do you see a theme running through how Haman named his kids? It's all about him, isn't it? It's all about the self. And all of these were put to death. All of these selves were put to death. Isn't that interesting that sin has to die, self has to die before victory is accomplished? There's, there's an incredible contrast here between Haman and his pride, which leads to his downfall, and not just his downfall, the downfall of his entire lineage. It leads to the destruction of all of them because Haman is so prideful, and you see that throughout the book of Esther. And, and, and Haman says, I'm going to make it all about me, and I'm going to exalt me, and then he dies for it. What a contrast with Esther. Esther says, if I die, then I die. She's willing to die, and she's exalted for it, as opposed to Haman, who, who wants to make himself, who wants to exalt himself. Both of them are going to die, right? Haman's going to die, Esther's going to die, but there's very different ways to go about it, about what you're pursuing, about how much you make life about you. And that's a good lesson for us to remember as we, as we look at this, that you have a limited amount of time on earth, 20, 30, 50, 70, 80 years, whatever. You have a limited amount of time on earth, and you can either make it about yourself and, and, and all about you and getting yours, um, or you can use your life to honor God and let him exalt you if he, if he chooses to, uh, but you can make your life about him and not about yourself. So there's an incredible contrast there between the, the two of them. And this is a theme that shows up throughout Scripture uh, about not making yourself a big deal. Jesus later comes along and says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What does it matter if you get all of the things and you get all the houses and the money and the whatever, the popularity, and you get all your fame, you get all those things, and you give up your soul in the process? That's going to last for eternity. What, is it, what does it matter um, if you get stuff that's now. Eterni- it, we are meant for eternity. We will live in heaven or in hell with God or separated from God forever. So we have to think about the time that we're spending here on earth and what we're doing with it. Um, we have to examine and, and let Esther help us to examine. Every one of us is going to die. Where is this thing going? And what are we, what are we actually living for? So let me just finish up Esther uh, chapter 9, look at verse 11, because it looks like Esther's about to pour it on here. It's, it's, it's kind of weird. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. When, what, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Okay, a couple things here. It's, it's a little much, isn't it? Like, 
they've already defended themselves one day, and Esther says, yeah, can we do that again tomorrow? Now, maybe Esther knows of some sort of plot against the Jews for the next day, and so she's like, we need to defend ourselves one more day. That's possible. And then she also says, can you hang the ten sons of Haman? Now, keep in mind, they've already been killed. So she's like, let's also string them up, which seems a little extra, doesn't it? Uh, it's a little, she's a, it seems a little bloodthirsty. And it says gallows, but it could actually just be translated as tree. It's not likely that they're hung on gallows in the way that uh, you think of Old English, like with a noose. Um, it's more likely that it's a tree maybe with a sharp part put into a spike, and they just impale someone on a spike. And you would do that to let, like, let this be a lesson to you kind of thing, like let all the people see these people hanging up here on a spike or, or who have been impaled. Um, Esther's a Jewish girl, and she knows her Torah, and she probably knows Deuteronomy chapter 21. It says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So God gives us instruction. He said, look, if you're hung on a tree, that is a curse by God. And Esther says, let's hang them on a tree so that everybody knows that, they, that who has, what has happened here and that they have actually been cursed by God. Now, this hang on it, you're cursed when you hang on a tree thing, hold on to that thought because we'll, we'll come back to that. So Esther is in, in effect finishing the job that Saul didn't do hundreds of years before and that, that began in about a thousand year uh, conflict between the Amalekites and, and the Jews. Um, and so she finishes that. And then it says, it, it says in a couple places the Jews did not take the plunder, which is a way of saying they weren't doing this for like profit because the original plan was kill the Jews, take their money. The Jews are not doing that. They're just, retali- they're, they're just retaliating and then fighting back, but they're not taking people's stuff as they, as they attack their enemies. Okay, so the book then wraps up with a celebration. Um, it's called Purim. Uh, that is celebrated to this day in, in sort of the Jewish calendar. Purim comes from the word pur, which I told you in the beginning was um, a dice-throwing kind of game. So Haman casts lots or throws the pur um, to figure out what day that he should kill the Jews. Um, and so Purim is a, like, this is a celebration of the dices kind of idea, a celebration of casting lots. And it was the idea that God is the one really in charge. You can throw dice if you want and leave it to the fate of the gods, but the true God actually is going to do his will and do his thing. So the, the festival of Purim is celebrated to this day. There's food, there's a celebration, there's an exchange of gifts that goes along with it. And, and the story of Esther is read, and whenever Esther and Mordecai's name is, uh, is spoken, people cheer, and then when Haman's name is spoken, you're supposed to boo or hiss. There are seven festivals that God initiated in the, in the scriptures for the Jews like that you've probably heard of, like Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, that are, God said, hey, celebrate these things. And then there are two festivals that the people um, made themselves that, that didn't necessarily come from God, but the people just said, we're going to do this. And one of them is Purim and one of them is Hanukkah. You've probably heard, heard of those. So that's kind of, this story is the backdrop and the origin story of Purim. So what do we learn about justice and all of this. We touched on this a bit last week, but one of the things we learn is God's timeline is different than our timeline. He can, he can let something go for hundreds of years and maybe give people an opportunity to repent or change before he steps in and does something. It's a slow dripping, but eventually that cup 
overflows. Um, we learned that. We also learned that God sees the bigger picture that we don't have, that, that he can see and hold together multiple details and motives and, and the hearts of many people. He can hold that together and, and work uh, through that. But I think also in this, we see God's grand plan for justice. Because 400 plus years after this story happens with Esther, Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. And we're going to celebrate that all next month, and we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus and as we lead toward Christmas. But the reason we celebrate Jesus' birth is because of his death, because of how he died and what he died for and what it means about the judgment and justice of God and actually what it means about the love of God. Um, God's anger, his judgment, his justice is coming on people who sin. And, and, and it's a real thing, and we, we have to take it seriously. And this is the part that we don't like. This gets uncomfortable because this makes it very modern day. The Apostle Paul, when he writes about God's judgment, listen to how he describes it in Romans 2. He's talking about how we often judge each other in, in various ways. And listen to what he says. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, I love this, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's heavy. And, you think that, and if you think, oh, that's for those people, that's for some subset of like the really bad people, Paul goes on, Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. We've all done this. And there's a price to pay for that, Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, we've all messed up. And, and it's really easy for us to... To, to ignore that. Like we read the book of Esther and we think we're the Jews. We think we're the good guys in the story. But the truth is we're all broken. We're probably more like the Persians than the Jews. We're, we have our own issues. And we read that and go, well, God, you know, ordered the wipe, wiping out of the Amalekites or the flood. That's the Old Testament God. That God's just angry. I like the New Testament God. He's nice. I just read to you from the New Testament where it says that there's righteous, like God has wrath coming and judgment is coming. Like, that's a New Testament idea as well. It's the same God in, in both. He's just got a long arc of history, and, and, and a, he's, he's working through his plan. Um, that God, the same God, he's not bad. He's not evil. He's not like, oh, he just tries really hard, but sometimes he gets it wrong. That's, that's not the case with, with God. God is the holy creator God who is all-powerful and he's a righteous judge and he can see clearly and he can judge rightly and we can't. I try to judge and I'm, I'm not going to get it right. This kid shouldn't get a disease. This village shouldn't get burned. Why do people get away with these things? My ex did this to me or whatever. Like we have all of these things where we want to be judged and we're just not good at that. God has a plan for dealing with sin and his plan works through Jesus. Jesus grows up to be a man, and, and he is righteous. He is sinless. He doesn't blow it. At no point did God look down on his son Jesus and go, man, I'm so angry with him. He keeps blowing it. No. Jesus was, was righteous, and, and he was killed. He was crucified. He was publicly murdered under the hands of the Romans and the Jews working together to, to have him killed. He was, he was killed in Jerusalem and hung on a tree for our sins, 
the idea is that God was go- that the wrath of God is coming and he pours it out on Jesus in our place. Our sin goes to Jesus on the cross and his righteousness, he's the only one who got through this thing and did it right, comes back to us. When we give our lives to him, when we're baptized into him, we take on his righteousness and he takes our sin with him onto that cross. That's the great exchange that happens. Um, and it, it's powerful. He actually goes so far as to be hung on a tree, which as all the Jews of that time would have understood, you're cursed when you do that. He becomes the curse for our sins. It's a powerful thing. And that's how God can be just and deal with evil and not just pretend it doesn't exist. But it's also how God can be loving and not punish us for the evil that we have and the bad things that we have done. God, in, at the cross, you see sorrow and love flowing, mingling down. You see justice and love coming together where there is still punishment for evil, but we don't have to bear the, the weight of that. And it's a, it's a powerful, powerful thing because the truth is, as much as we cry out for justice, justice will never be enough for us. It'll never be enough. Just because someone who did you wrong and they get what's coming to them, that's not gonna fix your heart. And you see it all the time when someone murders someone and they end up on death row and if they're in one of the states that does capital punishment, you see, you see a murderer get executed and the family's there to witness it or whatever. And we hope that that makes the family feel better, but it doesn't. Not really. Not ultimately. Justice doesn't have the power to do that. And so at the cross, Jesus goes beyond justice. God moves beyond justice to something like mercy and forgiveness and grace. And that's actually what, what we need. And it's a powerful thing that our sin is dealt with on the cross, and grace is ours through Christ. Now, there's no guarantee of it. God does not force himself upon us. You have to accept him. You have to give your life to him to, to, to accept that sacrifice on the cross. And so we ask, and maybe the book of Esther can point you to this, Uh, let me make this invitation. The unseen God is calling out to you and he wants you to be in a relationship with him, to give your life to him, to say, I'm gonna follow him, I'm gonna trust him, I will be baptized. We can baptize you here uh, and you can baptize into Christ and give your life to him and say, I'm in, I I wanna be in God's family. Um, that, That offer is there for you. He invites you into a relationship with himself. We called this series Unseen because of how God works behind the scenes so much in the book of Esther. But we had thought about calling it tapestry. If you've ever seen a tapestry, you know, sometimes they have them hanging in castles and whatever, but you see a, a tapestry where it's this beautiful picture on one side and someone's weaved it together and it, it looks amazing. But if you ever flip a tapestry over and can see the back of it, it's kind of a mess. Like the string is going everywhere and the colors and it does not make a pretty picture on the back of a tapestry. It's only when you flip it around and you can see how it all comes together that's a beautiful thing. And I think most of our life is like that. Stuff happens and we're looking at the back side of the tapestry and it just looks like a mess. And the only one who can really see it clearly is God. And he can see the beautiful picture that's being made even though to us it looks messy. Um, and, and, and we can trust that he is weaving something beautiful. And we believe that as he sees things right, someday we will get to see things right as well. That is the hope that we cling to. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jesus who
takes our sin on the cross, who deals with ultimate justice for all the things that have been done wrong, um, and He gives us hope for the future. God, um, I pray now as we take the bread and juice in communion that represents His body and His blood, that we will um, remember the sorrow and love that flow mingled down. Um, We will remember that He died for us. and, and, and really absorb that truth as, as we take those elements. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.